good to see everybody this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you feel comfortable, that you leave here encouraged and edified by the services. Uh, it is our desire that, that we please God with everything that we do, that we teach his word in an accurate way, uh, that we don't misrepresent him, but that we glorify him by being here this morning. And we're glad that you're here to share in that, and that's, that's our hope and our desire this morning. Uh, as you know, a couple of months ago, we started a series on rightly dividing the word of truth. And this series is dedicated to understanding how the Bible works, how it functions, if you will. Because the Bible is not like just some book that some person wrote where we just read it and we just understand it and comprehend it. But rather, the Bible is divinely inspired by God. That it is, it is God-breathed. And so God chose specific men to write down his will for us, delivered his will to us, so that we could read it and know who God is and what he wants from us. But it's more complicated than just simply opening the Bible and reading it. And so we're going to continue with this thought of looking through the correct lens in order to understand God's Word. So if you remember from our first study, uh, we talked about that the Bible, uh, that it requires precision. It requires surgery, if you will. And the idea of rightly dividing is to dissect something, to make a straight cut, to be careful as we divide God's Word. That God's Word is layered uh, that we have all these different authors who wrote God's will over thousands of years, but those things harmonize. And as we look at the harmony in the scriptures, we get a full picture of God's truth. We also talked about there are times when the word doesn't work. And those times when the word doesn't work, it's not because the word is ineffective, it's because our heart or our ears or our eyes are not correct. And so we have to get those things in line before we search God's will so that we have the correct desire and the right lens, if you will, to look at God's word. So now we're going to talk about uh, Moses. You say, why are we going to talk about Moses? Well, we have to talk about Moses. And we also need to talk about the prophets because as we're looking at this idea of dividing God's word, we don't just want to understand God's word. What we really need to understand is how God's word applies to us because that's where we're going to get the benefit. That's how we're going to bear fruit in our life. That's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to please God. And if we don't understand how God's word applies to us, we're going to actually be more confused than we are have a clear picture of God. So... As we talk about Moses, I want to start with Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, where the Hebrew writer starts his letter out by saying, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, that's where we're living right now, in the last days, spoken to us by his son, notice, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He paints this contrast that God used to speak in various ways, at various times, to the fathers. And when he says fathers, he just means ancestors. You know, if you think about all the different ways that God spoke to man, God sometimes communicated in a unique way. You know, to Adam and Eve, he spoke directly. But he didn't do that to everybody. God didn't always speak to everybody, and God doesn't speak to us directly today. He speaks through 
Jesus Christ. But you know, sometimes God would speak through visions and dreams. He would give a prophet a, a, a vision that would be very symbolic in nature. And it wasn't meant to be taken literal. It was meant to be interpreted. But God himself would interpret for them the visions and dreams and the people would understand his message. With Moses, he spoke differently. God said, I won't speak to him like the other prophets. I'm going to speak to him apparently. That is clearly, concisely. I'm going to speak to him face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, I'm going to speak to Moses in a different way. God spoke in various ways at various times, but he doesn't do that today. He doesn't speak in various ways. He doesn't speak according to various times. God speaks exclusively through his son Jesus. Now, is Jesus here today talking to us? Well, not literally. So how did that come about? And we're not going to go into great detail because we talked about this some in our first lesson. That God inspired prophets he inspired the apostles he inspired the writers of the new testament and so jesus told them i will send the holy spirit uh, or the father will send the holy spirit in my name rather and he will remind you of all things i've said unto you he's going to guide you into all truth and that's how jesus speaks to us today through the words that were written or penned in the new testament so this is sort of a breakdown of the timeline uh, that we often refer to, it's a basic Bible timeline. Don't get hung up on the dates. These are rounded, they're approximate dates. From creation to Mount Sinai, two, uh, 2,500 years. We call this the age of the fathers of the patriarchal age. Now, I want you to think about something. 2,500 years, this is the largest age of the earth's existence and God communicating to man. And yet it goes from Genesis 1 to Exodus 20. It's the smallest section of scripture. The smallest section. And then we've got Moses, the Mosaical age, which started at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments that went until Jesus died on the cross. About 1,500 years. And it is the largest section of information that we have in the Bible that goes all the way from Exodus 20 at the giving of the law all the way to the end of Malachi. Very large section. A lot of information there. A lot of details there. So, first off, I want to say this. Don't throw out Moses. There's a reason why God put so much information in the Mosaical age. But then we've got the Christian age, which is what we live in today. And I put no man knows because we don't know how long it's going to last. But this is the age that we're living in today. You say, well, what does it matter? Well, it matters a great deal. Because when Moses was given the law, everything changed. And then when Jesus died on the cross, everything changed again. And it's not going to change until Jesus comes back. God's will is set for mankind. Everything has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I hope that we leave here today understanding how Moses fits into that. So Romans 15 and verse 4. Paul writes here, says, For whatever things were written before, he's talking about the Old Testament, were written for who? For our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. It wasn't just written for the people that lived during the Mosaical Age. It was written for us, for our learning. So we're going to talk about three things this morning particularly. What is the Old Testament? We use that term a lot, Old Testament. And typically when we say Old Testament, uh, we think about from Genesis to Malachi. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Number two... What can the Old Testament teach us? And number three, what are the limits of Old Testament teaching? Because there are limits to Old Testament teaching. So what is the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament uh, is a collection of 39 books written by various hands but authored by one God through divine direction. 
So we got 39 books, and, and depending on uh, who's reading or looking at those, they may count them differently because, uh, you know, back in the, the olden days, if you want to call them that, if they said Isaiah the prophet said this, well, they may be talking about something that was written by not only Isaiah but Jeremiah because they just collected all those into one book and they just referred to it as Isaiah. But our modern-day translations, we recognize 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, when we say Old Testament, we don't necessarily mean the law. When people refer to the law, a lot of times they're talking about Genesis uh, and the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's often referred to as the law. Not everything in there is the Mosaic law. Obviously, we talked about that. Genesis 1 to Exodus 20 doesn't refer to Moses' law, but that's a collection that sometimes even Jesus would refer to as the law. But specifically when we talk about the law of Moses, we're talking about the Ten Commandments and all the written book of the law which is contained in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy. Numbers is a book of history. There are things, references to the law in Numbers, but it's more a book of history about their wandering through the wilderness. But specifically Leviticus and Deuteronomy and then some of Exodus contains what we know as the law of Moses, that which was binding the commandments that God had for Israel. So one of the questions we're going to have to ask today is, does that book have authority for us today? 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is that idea of divine direction. Notice what Peter says. When someone prophesied, they didn't do that from their own will. It wasn't according to man's will that prophecy was given. It was according to God's will. Well, how does that work? God moved them through the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Do you think when God moved these men through the Spirit that they had a choice? Like they, that, like they could say, no, God, I'm not going to tell them that. Well, they sometimes had a choice of whether they went. You go back to the story of Jonah. God says, I want you to go and talk to Nineveh. And he goes, I'm not doing that. <laughs> but we're talking about these inspired men that were prophets that delivered a message and once God told them to say something, they said it. They spoke as they were moved. They didn't say, well, I think this is what God's trying to say and interpret God's message. Notice what he says. It's not of any private interpretation. How sure of a, prof of a prophetic word would it be if man first received it through the Holy Spirit and then tried to dumb it down and interpret it? It wouldn't be that sure, would it? But they weren't doing that. They weren't interpreting what God said. They were telling people what God said. And that's very important to understand about the prophets and also about the law of Moses. They had divine direction. So I'll put this up there. Denver said, I can't read that. That's okay. We're going to blow it up. This is a uh, representation of how many prophecies are actually given in the New Testament. Now, Titus is not on here because there are no prophecies in Titus. Uh, it's an evangelistic letter, a letter of direction given to a Gentile man. There were just no prophecies in it. So it's not on the timeline. But just in the Gospels alone, there are 228, if I counted that right, references to the Old Testament. 228. Why? That's the question, why? Why so many references? And Jesus made it very clear in John 5, 39. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Understand this about the prophets, about the scriptures. When he says scriptures... He's not talking about New Testament. The, Old Testament. the New Testament wasn't written yet. What's he talking about? The Old Testament. He's telling these Pharisees, you searched the scriptures, and they did. And he said, and in them you think you have eternal life. And they did not. <laughs> they did not have eternal life through those scriptures. Why? 
Because Jesus is the light of life. He is eternal life. They were missing the picture. Their focus, their focus was on the old, on the law, and not on what the law was pointing them to. Jesus said, you search the scriptures for them that you think you have eternal life. And here's something you need to know. Those scriptures testify of me. You know what's ironic? That that was their purpose. But these men spent day and night searching the scriptures, having the wrong lens, and never really saw the truth. Okay, so we're not going to go through all of this. But I want you to notice that in what we often refer to as the Gentile letters, where Paul is mostly addressing Gentiles, the prophecies are not very heavy. And that makes sense. The Gentiles really did not understand or learn in the same way that the Jews did. They weren't connecting things about the kingdom because they weren't looking for a kingdom to come. Uh, they were not looking for the prophecies to be fulfilled because most of them were unfamiliar with the prophecies. Now, you notice that in Galatians and Ephesians, there's a little bit more. In Galatians especially, because it was a very heavy influence of Judaism in Galatia, where some of these other cities didn't have such an influence. So he's addressing Jew and Gentile more heavily in Galatians and in Ephesians. Uh, but mostly they were written to Gentile uh, Christians. So another breakdown, if you look at Revelation, very heavy in prophecy, especially from Ezekiel and also the book of Daniel. And what Daniel sealed, John revealed. And so if you go through and you look through the book of Daniel, you see all these prophecies, they look a whole lot like Revelation. Well, what's that about? Well, Daniel was giving that then, and then when John was given his revelation through Jesus Christ, he was saying, the time is now, the time is now. 855 times the Old Testament is referenced. Now, I put an asterisk next to that, and I'll tell you why. Because there may be one or two, you know, it's like the political polls, plus or minus. I don't know. There may be one or two that they've missed. But, but this is a rough estimate of how many times. It's very thick throughout the New Testament. Because, again, remember, it's written for our learning. Here's what Jesus had to say about the law and the prophets in Matthew 5 and 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Now this is very important. Notice Jesus didn't just say, I didn't come to destroy the law. He said the law or the prophets. A lot of times people read this and they say, well see, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. Well that, you're misunderstanding what he's saying here. He's not saying I'm not going to do away with its authority or do away with its relevance. What he's saying is this. I didn't come to teach against the law. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to teach contradictory to the law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I came to do what the law was designed to do, which is fulfill it. And he said not one dot of an I, not one crossing of a T will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. What did Jesus say? Till all is fulfilled. Someone says, see, not one dot of an I or one crossing of a T will ever pass. That's not what he said. He said, till it's fulfilled. Well, who fulfilled it? Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the law. We know what the word till means, don't we? Till all is fulfilled. Well, when was it fulfilled? In Jesus Christ. And that's what he came to do was fulfill it. So what are the limits of the Old Testament? Well, number one, it's not an authority for religious practices in the Christian age. You can't go back to the old law and say, well, this is how we need to worship today because this is how David worshipped or this is how Hezekiah worshipped or, or this is how Samuel worshipped. You can't go back to the old law and say, well, this is the restrictions for me today. We're not allowed to, to eat shrimp. We're not allowed to eat catfish. We're not allowed to eat pork. You've got to follow all the laws and ordinances of the law of Moses. That's actually not true. 
We don't follow the laws in the old law, in the law of Moses, that is the Ten Commandments or the written book of the law. It's not an authority for us. We can still learn from it, but it's not an authority. And so we're talking about both of these things, not just the law itself and the commandments, but also using the practices that were done under Moses as a pattern for us today. We cannot do that. It's limited there. Now, they were to do that. Now, there's things we can learn from them, and we're not going to be able to delve into that today, but it's not an authority. Okay, so I've been moving pretty fast. I want to slow down just for a second. And so I want to look at Hebrews chapter 9. This is, a, this is such an important chapter for us to understand the relevance and the application of Moses' law for us today. And if you look at the book of Hebrews, the entire letter that was written to the Hebrews had one purpose. You know what it was? It was to tell all the Jewish Christians, stop looking at Moses and start looking at Christ. That's the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The news better, the promises are better, and Moses had its day, but understand what it was. Understand what it was. So here's what he says. He says, for this reason, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant. What reason? Okay, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. So, what was the reason that Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant? To redeem us from sin and give us inheritance, eternal life. That's pretty simple, right? That was the purpose. But then he says this, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after Men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Let's break this down in very simple terms. You know what a testator is? First time I was in a study, a five-part study with Sean Zebach, he looked at somebody and said, you know what a testator is? And they said, no. He said, it's one of those potatoes that you take to a lab and you do. And they were looking at him like, you're crazy. He said, oh, you didn't. Well, let's move on. A testator is the person who the will is attached to. It's their will. It's their testament. And so we're talking about Jesus being the testator of the New Testament. And he says, when did it become a force? After he died, right? That's how will and testament works. If you write a last will and testament, none of that has any authority until you die. And then it becomes a force, right? Then it could be executed. The will can be executed. So that's a very simple point, right? The will of Jesus... The New Testament became a force after the testator, Jesus, died. Then he says this, very important. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Well, why is he talking about that now? Because he's trying to point them to the fact that this was all a picture in the old toward the new. The first testament was dedicated without, uh, was dedicated rather with Blood, for when Moses had spoken, verse 19, every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the law, sprinkled it with blood. Why? Saying this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. What's he trying to say? He's saying this, you shouldn't be shocked that Jesus, that the New Testament is now a force. Because Jesus shed his blood and Jesus is the testator. And we've already seen this happen before. We saw when the covenant was binding upon the people. When was it? When Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the law. And in a figurative way, that's what Jesus has done today. He's consecrated his law, his testament 
through the shedding of his blood. Therefore it was necessary, notice that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. That means not made by men. And he says, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice this word copies, copies, copies. What's he saying? He's saying all Moses' law was, was a copy of the true, a pattern for the reality. It wasn't about the physical temple, the building that they worshipped in. That temple has a heavenly reality that we call the church. And that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where they would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of God, he says that's just a copy of the heavenly reality that we know as heaven. And he says Jesus took his blood, not into the back of a building, but into the presence of God himself and said, here's the blood of the sacrifice. And what happened? Everything changed. Everything changed. So at that moment when Jesus dies on the cross and he sheds his blood, what happens? Moses' law is no longer an authority. Everything from Mount Sinai at the giving of the law up until the death of Jesus, Moses' law is a binding authority for the people. But once Jesus dies, the death of the testator occurs. Everything after that is the New Testament. We live in that age today. Not under this age where we're bound to keep the law of Moses, but under this age where we're bound to follow the words of Jesus Christ handed down to us through the apostles because they have been divinely directed through the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 3 verse 23 says it this way, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which should afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. If you're a King James student, you'll recognize this word tutor is usually schoolmaster. The Greek word actually means a young boy who would lead others to school. I, I think about a crossing guard, you know. Well, kept under guard. There's kind of some language there that indicates that, that it was, it was taking them to the place where they needed to be. So let's look at some words here because this is important. Before faith came... That's interesting. I mean, I know it. faith goes at least back to Abel because Hebrews 11 says that, right? By faith, Abel offered. So what does he mean before faith came? Was faith not in existence? Notice the connection. Here's a very important as we're talking about studying the Bible. Notice the layers. He says the same thing three times in different ways. The faith came. What faith? The faith which should afterward be revealed. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the faith that was not yet known. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ after faith is come. What's he talking about? Faith in Christ. Faith in the gospel. The gospel was not revealed. The new covenant wasn't revealed yet. But he said, once it was, what happened? We're no longer under the tutor, which is what? The old law. That's really simple, isn't it? What was Moses' job? Not to be the teacher, but to take us to the teacher. It was a tutor. It was meant to bring us to where we needed to be. The focus doesn't need to be on the one leading us to the destination. Moses is not the destination. He's taking us to the destination. He's taking us to Christ. It's just a tutor. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. 
Now, there's some debate over what this exactly means, handwriting of ordinances. So we're going to do a little bit of word study, not a lot, but a little bit of word study here. Uh, but let's start out with the idea of blotting out. Does everybody know what it means to blot something out? Okay, let's say you take a pencil and you write something uh, on a piece of paper and then you turn your eraser around and you, you erase it, right? Well, sometimes it leaves a little bit ridge, so that's not really blotting out, is it? Well, that's the idea, though. It's to erase something. It's like when you take an eraser across a chalkboard, you blot it out. What's he blotting out? Handwriting of ordinances. Now, there's been really three schools of thought on this. Uh, and I'll talk about the one I agree with last. But uh, the first school of thought is blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. He's talking about sin. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is he's talking about Pharisaical tran, uh, traditions. Pharisaical tra traditions. Those were blotted out. Well, number one, let's do some word study. Then we're going to try to be true to the text. So whatever this handwriting of ordinances is, he says this about it. It was against us. It was contrary to us. And Jesus took it out of the way. That is, he moved it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In other words, he put it to death when he was put to death, if you will. So that much we know about this. Well, let's, let's do our word study here. What is handwriting of ordinances? Well, it comes from two Greek words. One is the word kirigraphon. That word means something handwritten. Pretty good translation, right? Handwriting of ordinances, something handwritten. It can refer to a bond or a document or a manuscript. But here's what we need to know. It's something that was handwritten. What is the word ordinance? This is a Greek word that you're familiar with. You say, I don't know Greek. No, but you've heard this word. I'm sure you've heard it. It's the word dogma. You've heard that word, right? Dogma. What is dogma? It's a law. We say, well, I'm not dogmatic about that. What do we mean? I'm not trying to bind that as a law. It's, that's what dogma is, and it can be any law, civil, ceremonial, or ecclesiastical. And so what was blotted out? Handwritten law. That's simple. Isn't that simple? So is he talking about Moses' law, or is he talking about the law that the Pharisees had? Well, number one, the law, as we learned last week from Nathan, that was called the oral law. Why? Because it wasn't written down. But number two... Here's how we know that this wasn't talking about Pharisaical tradition or any other tradition, but rather the law of Moses. Notice what he says. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regard, regarding a festival or numerous Sabbath days. What laws talked about these things? Moses' law. Moses' law is what bound us in food and in drink and festival days and new moons and Sabbaths. Notice which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. I'd be very careful about saying Pharisaical tradition was a shadow of Jesus. It wasn't. The law of Moses was a shadow of Jesus. Again, it wasn't the destination. It was just taking us to the destination. You know what a shadow is, right? What can you learn about a shadow? A little but you know, if I was to put my hand up against something like this, and you could see the shadow of my hand, if I was holding it like this, what would the shadow look like? A hand. But what if I turned it sideways, and all you could see was a shadow? You didn't know what it was. So you go, well, I don't know what that is. Well, I could do this, and you go, oh, it's a dog. <laughs> you know, it can be deceiving. A shadow can be deceiving. It's not meant to be deceiving. It's just that you can't really tell everything about the substance by the shadow. But see, Jesus is the substance, and all Moses was was a shadow of the true, a shadow of the substance. See, we actually understand the shadow better because we see the substance. It was written for our learning, but we have to view it through Christ Jesus. So the law was bringing us to Christ to get us there, but Christ is also telling us the reality of Moses' law. Nothing makes sense in the Old Testament without Jesus. Nothing. 
And if you look at the Old Testament without Jesus, it's not going to make sense to you either. Because it's not meant to be read as an authority for us today. But we can learn from it. Matthew 5, 17. Revisiting this passage, this time having a little bit different emphasis. Jesus said, do not think that I am come or that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He said it's more likely that heaven and earth would pass away than for something in the law to not be fulfilled. It was set in stone. God didn't prophesy and then go, man, I hope Jesus does all this that I've got. I sure hope he fulfilled. No, it was going to be fulfilled. Everything was going to be fulfilled by Jesus. You know what's interesting? We have this passage in Luke 16, and it's, it's, it's one other gospel as well, where he says the law and the prophets were until John. What John is he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. Well, you said, Emil, I thought you said the law uh, went out of effect when Jesus died. That's right. But now you're saying the law and the prophets were until John. No, don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying. Notice a really specific word here. Since that time, the kingdom of God is what? Not come, not in effect. It's preached. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone is pressing into it. What? The kingdom. You know what they weren't pressing into? Moses. But some were resistant. Some were resistant. But the whole point of John's ministry was to pull people away from Moses and toward Jesus. It's time to go toward Jesus. Notice Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. Nathan talked about this last week. That there was a famine in the land of Israel. There was a time, a 400 year period where no prophet spoke. Amos prophesied about that. He said, behold the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. I want you to think about how this impacted Israel. 400 years is a long time. How long has America been a country? Not even 250 years. 400 years where no prophet said, thus says the Lord. And what are people doing? They're looking for prophets. He says they're wandering from sea to sea, from the, the north to the south, from the, or the north to the east, he says. He said they're going to run everywhere looking for the word of the Lord, and they won't find it. And he said, you know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be starving. They're starving for direction, starving for guidance from God. And yet no prophet spoke in Israel. And all of a sudden, a man shows up, and these people are starving for guidance, and he begins to give it to them. You think God planned that silence for a reason you think he starved the people for a reason he sure did and Malachi ends by saying behold I send you Elijah the prophet we talked about this in our John study Elijah was coming they were looking for Elijah to come that's why when they talked to John the Baptist they said are you Elijah and he said no I'm not Elijah but he was Elijah not literally Elijah but he was the uh, prophesied Elijah that was to come. Now notice what his work was to do. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And he said, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. John's work was extremely important. And sometimes I think we don't recognize just how important John's work was. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord 
their God. Now notice verse 17. He will also go before him, now notice, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, but his work was similar to Elijah. His power was similar to Elijah. The way that he spoke with authority was similar to Elijah. But I want you to know something about John. John did no miracles, not a one. And Jesus said, even though John did no miracles, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Do you know why? Because he had the most important job of all the prophets. You know what it was? To turn the hearts away from Moses and toward Jesus. Away from sin and toward the Lord. Away from the world and toward heaven. That was John's job. He said, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children. Now listen, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the question is, why didn't the people get it? Why didn't they understand it? Why were they so resistant? And you know why we, we ask those questions? Because we grew up in a time where we learned the New Testament and we learn these principles and we look back on Moses and we look at these people and we go, well, they just didn't get it. Well, would we have gotten it had we been there? No, no we wouldn't have gotten it either. See, we're privileged. We have the information they didn't have. We know about the reality. We know about the substance. They didn't know about the substance. All they could do is look at the shadows and try to figure things out. And they couldn't do it. And so Jesus goes and he takes his three closest apostles. These guys were in his inner circle, if you will, James, John, and Peter. You know, a lot of times Jesus took them, those, them three, Texas here, those three with him to an isolated place. And he showed them things and he taught them things that he did not tell the others. And this was a special time. The Mount of Transfiguration. But I want to ask you a question. What was this story about? What was its, its significance? Why did Jesus take them up on the mountain? Why did Moses and Elijah show up? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is going on here? So I want you to think about it. Jesus is completely transfigured. He's changed. And this, this is a kind of an animated, I guess, representation. But it's the best I could find. So I don't know if Moses had his staff either, but... You can tell which is which that way. Jesus' countenance, that is his appearance, is totally changed. He is emitting this bright, white light. And all of a sudden, here's Moses and Elijah standing with him. And the disciples, the three disciples, wake up and that's what they see. And you ever say something, but you say it out of emotion and out of excitement. You don't really think it through. Me too. We call it sticking our foot in our mouth. Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three temples, three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. And it says, not knowing what he had said. And then a very familiar thing happens. A cloud overshadows them just like it did on Mount Sinai when God spoke to Moses. This cloud comes over and God speaks. You know what he says? This is my beloved son. Hear him. You know what he's saying? Moses is the embodiment of the law. Elijah, known to Israel as the greatest prophet of all the prophets. You know what he's saying? The law and the, Mos uh, the, law and the Moses, the law and the prophets had their time. Now it's time to hear my son. Don't listen to Moses. Don't listen to Elijah. Don't look toward them. Look toward Jesus. Because he's my son. Hear him. Friends, it's good to study the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. The history of the Old Testament is rich. The stories they're, they're fascinating, they're interesting, and again, we can learn a lot of things about God, his character, and his nature. But be very careful about what you apply to yourself in the law of Moses. And I'm going to tell you, Christians are ridiculed for this. 
they're scrutinized for this often. And it's because people don't understand. They say, well, you know, Christians will say this and that, but then, you know, the law of Moses says, well, you can't wear this and you can't eat that, but they do that. Well, that's because those were Jews and were Christians. We're Christians. We have liberties that the Jews did not have. We have liberty in Christ. But I'll tell you, God's moral law, his moral law, did not change, and it's all retaught in the New Testament. But you know what's different? It's wrong to commit adultery. But you know what we don't do? We don't drag somebody out south of town here and gather around them with stones and bludgeon them to death. We don't do that. That was in Moses' law. That was part of the law. It wasn't thou shalt not commit adultery and then there's an explanation, an expounding, if you will, in the written book of the law. The Ten Commandments are the framework for the law that gave to Moses. And the written book of the law is the expounding or explanation of those original ten. They're not two separate laws. They were all done away with. But nine of the ten were retaught. In the New Testament, by Jesus' apostles. But there's one that wasn't. You know what it was? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Was not retaught in the New Testament. We don't have to keep the Sabbath day. And that's why we read in Colossians 2, Let no man judge you, therefore, in regard to food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Why? Because they were a shadow of what was coming. But the image has come. He showed up and he gave his life. And he's the testator of the new covenant. And that's what we follow today. And friends, today, we don't live under a law of sin and death like Moses' law was. We live under a law of life and righteousness. And you can have life and righteousness. God will still condemn man for their sins unless they're in a covenant with the Son. And if you're not in a covenant with the Son, you can be today. We have all things prepared. You can be baptized into Jesus Christ and united with him and become an heir just like we read in Hebrews, that was the fulfillment of Jesus' death, the purpose of Jesus' death, to redeem us and to give us eternal life. And you can have those things today. If you'd like that, come and have a seat on the front. As we stand and we sing, let your wishes be made known.